welcome to Talking Research. I am Asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations. This conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence, both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. Hello and welcome to the podcast in 2020. It's a new year, it's a new decade and uh, at the start of this year I decided not to trap myself into a new year's resolution because what usually happens is at some point during the year pretty early on actually might be as early as february i realize that i'm not actually doing anything about it and then it just gets added to a list of things that i feel like i haven't accomplished so um i decided not to make myself feel bad about you know some sort of an unrealistic goal but then as i was putting this podcast together this this episode together i realized that something that i want to resolve to do every day not just in this year but every single day generally is keeping the conversation about sexual violence going and um, learning more about it and understanding more and listening to survivors more and um identifying and tackling the gaps in my own knowledge and then also um tackling sexual violence because i do believe it's preventable I do believe we can all work towards ending it as a society. So this brings me to this episode. Uh I am talking to Dr. Joanna Burke who is a phenomenal academic and historian. She is a professor of history at Birkbeck College in London and um she's looked at all sorts of stuff. She's explored the histories of all sorts of stuff ranging from sexual violence, which is what this conversation is going to be about, about uh her book rape a history from the 1860s to the present pathbreaking book that she wrote which came out in 2007 and it's really sort of shaped our understanding of um you know rape in a modern society i mean her work is centered around uh, the us the uk and uh, australia but it was truly a pathbreaking book and it looked at rapists We talked about that. We talked about some of her research, and um, we talked about general themes about sexual violence, and we also talked about what keeps her going. So let's dive in. Hi, Joanna. Welcome to Talking Research. How are you today? I'm really well. It's great talking to you. I love <laughs> your podcasts. Oh, thank you so much. That's such a big compliment. And um, so to start. how would you introduce yourself in a way that you like to be introduced um i think just uh, calling me joanna burke i'm from birkbeck university of london i mean what you're leaving out is there's this huge legacy of uh, super impactful research that you've done on so many different aspects of history i mean it's not just about sexual violence there's stuff about violence in general pain um working class britain just this huge plethora of um really immense history so how did you get into researching all of that and specifically sexual violence well i mean i firstly i just love writing i think we're really privileged those of us who actually can actually have a job that enables us to write whatever we want so the freedom that that gives is intellectual freedom is just incredible um and of course 
I work at Birkbeck, which is part of the University of London, and we have the most amazing students. And I get so much stimulation from those students. So I think the combination of, you know, a job, an academic job where I can write whatever I want, whatever topic, you know, fires me up. And at the same time, these amazing students who are so generous with their thoughts and and in class, you know, they give me a lot of feedback and and a lot of ideas. So I think the combination is, is just perfect. But, you know, I mean, how did I get into violence? I got into violence because violence is intrinsically interesting. I mean, you know, why is it that that people who are like us um, and, you know, who are loving, kind, generous, how is it that they can also do absolutely horrific things to other people? Um, and that's always, I think, been um, a central um, theme in my sort of intellectual life. And sexual violence, of course, is one of the most important kinds of violence. I mean, you know, as you know, one in five of our female friends will be raped in their lifetime. And, you know, one in 12 of our male friends will also be sexually assaulted. So, you know, I'm really, really interested in how that can be, how just ordinary uh, people can act in such ways against other people. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, for me, I read this book uh, by Meetu Sanyal uh, earlier this year. It's called Rape from Lucretia to Meetu. And um, it was really liberating for me to read because I think just, reading how entrenched sexual violence has been in our society since pretty much the beginning of, you know, I don't know, time, since the beginning of uh, civilization as we know it, it, it helped me see that this, this, is not a, this is not a new problem. This has is, this is taken um, years and centuries of cultivation and uh, we've made a lot of progress in the last few decades. And me too... Uh, she credits you a lot in her book and she I spoke to her for the podcast and she again recommended your book as well and your book has been this really influential social um, uh, cultural history of of rape and um, you know focusing on rapists so tell me about that book how did you get into writing that one well, I think actually I was some um, a few books before um, I wrote the the, the rape book. I was actually working on uh, military violence. So I wrote a book called Intimate History of Killing, and mm. another one called Dismembering the Male. So I was really interested in military violence, how people, how British, American, Australian, New Zealand uh, men and some women kill other people in wartime. That was my focus. And I still remember um, working in an, an archive one day and coming across this account. And actually, it's the account that I start with in, in the rape book. Mm because it had a profound effect on me. It was an account from Vietnam, an oral history, and a, a uh, American soldier was saying how, you know, they went into this Vietnamese, Vietnamese village and there was this young girl and they, they surrounded her and they started gang, a gang rape, started raping her, and then it was his turn. And, you know, by this stage, you know, in the archive, sort of tears are streaming down my face as, I, as I'm reading this. And and then he said, he says, and I stepped up and I, I started to rape her. And um, she turned to me and she said in English, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? And, you know, I just was haunted by that phrase. And, and in fact, I still am haunted by that phrase about, you know, why? Why, you know, this, this ordinary American guy from the Midwest, why is he doing this? to her. So that was really what I 
what started me on in, in the rape book. And I really wanted to look at perpetrators. You know, you know, I was very aware that, you know, so much of the history of rape um just ignores the actual perpetrator experience. And I think that since the, you know, we need to actually just sort of turn a kind of cold eye on exactly why these men are, and some women are doing these things. So that's how I got into it. But then, of course, I started to talk to friends. Mm. And, you know, I was suddenly made aware just how prevalent this is in our society. And, and in the British context, how things have got so much worse in recent decades. You know, I mean, we all know that um, three-fifths, three um, three quarters, sorry, three quarters of all people who are sexually assaulted never report mm. the assault to any authority. But of those who do report, a tiny, tiny proportion get to British courts. And indeed, even if they get to the, the court system, a tiny, minuscule proportion ever um, result in a conviction. So, I mean, just to take the, the British statistics, because those are the ones I'm, I'm familiar with, 1970s, of one in every three reported cases of rape resulted in a conviction, one in three. 1980s, it's one in five mm. result in a conviction. 1990s, it's one in 10 uh, get a conviction. And today in Britain, it's between 5 and 7%. So in other words, only 1 in 20. So I was really shocked by we've made so much progress. You know, feminism, law reform, all these things have been incredibly important. And yet conviction rates remain you know, abysmal mm. in, in Britain and indeed all over the world. Um, so that was, I think, the second thing that really got me excited and interested in this topic. Mm. Hmm. Why do you think that is? I mean, I don't know if you've looked into this, but why do you think this backward uh, trend in convictions in Britain? I think there are a lot of reasons for it. Um, I think in, in large part, we have to remember that in the period that I'm talking about, of course, the definition of rape and sexual abuse expanded greatly. And what you get to, to a large degree is that even though the laws have changed to say, for example, um, a husband can rape his wife, um, I mean, legally, you know, he can be convicted for raping his wife. And that's a very recent thing. That didn't happen until 1991 in Britain. Okay. Um, so, and you get date rape and you get the expanding definition of what is included um, legally under the category of sexual violence or rape. And in a sense, the general public, jurors, in fact, in particular, haven't caught up with that. So I think that's one important reason. I also think, you know, it comes back to what you said at the beginning. I think it's really important that these are entrenched problems within our society. Um, you know, sexual violence has been a major issue. And the kind of what was generally called the rape myths, in other words, mm -hmm. um, no means yes, you can't rape a resisting woman. Um, you know, some kinds of, of rape are not, it's not really rape and women really want it. You know, these are entrenched things in our society and we haven't got over it. Hmm. 
and you start your book by defining rape and you're also very cautious about how you do it because you don't want to give um you don't want to make the narrative about entirely about the rapist in a book where you want to examine the rapist but you don't want to give the rapist and the act of rape that power and um you're very cautious about how we frame how we frame how we frame this definition and being a linguistic student um i i understand the value of defining things and how powerful it can be so i mean my question would be why did you feel like you had to unify a definition of rape and how did you do it yeah this was something i spent a lot of time working um and thinking about and talking to 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 people about because as you say it's really really important not to silence victims and in a sense um you know, definitions of rape are inherently complex they are inherently historical um and for too long the the people who have been given the power to say this is what rape is to define what rape is have been uh, either the legal system or indeed perpetrators themselves so to a large degree it's been powerful men who have been able to say this is what's rape and this is not really rape it's just you know a little bit of you know forceful play and so it was really really important that in a book where i'm trying to interrogate um perpetrators of violence that the voice the, the you know who says what is the harm has to be the woman mm. has to be the victim always the victim survivors and so you know so you know what definitions do we have i mean quite clearly i wanted to be sure that the definitions were sufficiently broad so you know you don't rape it does not require simply a, a man with a knife um it is much more than simple uh, simply violence mm. or coercion there are much more subtleties to it so i think my definition of sexual um abuse has two parts to it the first part is that a person any person has to identify that a particular act is sexual however they want to define sexual and that's really important because of course what is defined as sexual changes over time and changes according to the person doing the defining secondly that person has to claim that the act is non-consensual coerced unwanted however again they want to define non-consensual coerced unwanted so in other words it's the person any person who says that something is rape or sexual abuse i accept that claim in the book mm. and this kind of tries to get around giving perpetrators the voice victims um have that voice to say what well, actually what he did to me harmed me it was a sex a form of sexual harm but also you have to remember that some victims don't have a voice yeah. um a lot of victims die mm-hmm. <laughs> um a lot of victims for example are, are very young and they don't have the language or they're severely mentally impaired so my definition also allows any person to say that is a sexual harm so it also allows third parties to say actually what he's doing there that is sexual violence mm. um and of course then it enables me to say well how have people what you know, put that label and over time how's that label changed over time 
Um, and I think, well, I'm an historian, so I would say this, but I think you know, the change over time aspect is really, really important for me in my analysis. Mm. What you said about these, uh, a lot of women don't have a voice. Uh, a lot of women who are victimized don't have a voice. And this, this, this reminds me of where we are in India right now in that um, the, the news of, of um, very tragic rapes that make national headlines and that spark protests are the ones which involve a very very tragic violent death you know a woman is um raped or gang raped and then she's you know either she's mutilated and killed or she's burned alive and um and and this this makes me think of what you said at the start of your book about um why it's important to not indulge in that act of violence being a spectator because that gives power to the rapist that like validates his narrative so can you elaborate on that yeah absolutely i think you know not validating the narratives is absolutely crucial um and you know the 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 stories of extreme violence are you know, listening to them in itself causes harm causes harm to women or to vulnerable peoples um generally and and as you say it does make the rapist seem to be this sort of all powerful almost godlike figure in in the stories of sexual violation they have all the power they have you know it's it's glamorous it's it's violent it's explosive it's 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 masculinity writ large and I sought to undercut that at every stage in this book. You know, the rapist is not the epitome of masculinity. In fact, quite the opposite. The rapist is the dregs of masculinity, the, 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 the pathetic little sniveling um, bits of masculinity. Um, and you know, to try and reclaim a masculinity that is actually about love, is about um, reaching out to people, that is the good kind of masculinity that is strong and, and supportive and full of solidarity for others. This is the masculinity we need to be, to be celebrating, as opposed to this explosive, violent kind of masculinity, which unfortunately is seen as quite glamorous and like a role model for a lot of young uh, men. And we really need to get, sort of undercut that at every point. Yeah, and uh, this reminds me of, you know, what uh, this recent case in India where this very young woman was, you know, she was gang raped and then she was burnt and, you know, this made national headlines. And, you know, there's this outrage about this terrible, terrible crime. And then the next day you see a news that her name was the most searched on Pornhub in India. So that that established for me that also establishes that relationship between people who are spectators to this violence are not just necessarily looking at it and being outraged you know this also leaves the risk that uh, th th there's also a section of society who are going to use it in in a very perverted manner absolutely uh, absolutely um i mean violent porn is something that uh, pervades all of our societies. It's something really that I think we need to be very worried about. But I think there's also another aspect 
that in a sense I find more invidious, and that is that we've all kind of got a little bit um, blasé about sexual violence. I mean, you know, one in every eight Hollywood films has a scene of sexual violence. This is Hollywood films. We don't really notice it anymore. Mm. And I find that just as um, worrying as the, you know, the really aggressive pornography and, and, and violent pornography of, of sexual violence that is definitely out there and something we need to uh, be very worried about as well. But it is this more invidious thing that, um, that affects all of us. And I include myself in this, you know, um, you know, when I see a rape scene on, on television on a, just an ordinary television program, you know, I'm less likely to feel nauseous or ill and walk out of the room than perhaps I should be. And I think this is something that I think as a society, we need to to think about really, really carefully, this sort of pervasive violence against women in particular that pervades our society. Mm, and so, so what you're saying is that there is that aspect that it, it highlights what's going on, but it also normalizes it and it also makes us completely you know okay with what's happening by just consistently showing it to us and um, ingraining that in our heads that's really interesting yes exactly exactly and also it also imposes a sort of um, hierarchy of sexual harms that that I think we need to think about so you know the, this kind of like some kind of sexual harms are worse than others so obviously the sadistic rape murder um, that you're talking about, you know, that's obviously at one extreme, but, you know, then we keep going down and down and down and down and down. Then we come to, well, actually, you know, marital rape isn't really bad. Mm. <laughs> you know, they're married, you know, they've done it before, et cetera. You know, and I think that that, that is something that we, we also get the message. We get the message that, you know, some kinds of sexual harms are not really harmful or not as harmful because, of course, we all know that rape murder is very harmful. Mm. Um, and, you know, so that hierarchy of harms is something. And also the hierarchy is also physical versus emotional. Mm. So we have a hierarchy that, you know, oh, you know, he used a knife or something and, and hurt her um, physically. There's a wound and versus, oh, a date rape where he simply pressurizes her. Emotional harm It's not as serious. Um, you know, and so there's those kind of, well, I call them cognitive distortions that are really very, very prevalent. The main one, of course, being no wound, no rape. Mm. Um, and this is the one that is the most devastating in court cases. So medical professionals giving um, evidence in court cases that, you know, oh, you know, there was no, there was no great bruising or anything like that. Therefore, it didn't really happen or she's exaggerating or whatever or you know, trying to get compensation and, you know, emotional harms are seen as lesser than physical harms. Mm, yeah. And I want to pick up on what you said earlier about masculinity. And um, you've made it clear in your book as well that raping is not intrinsically related to natural manhood or masculinity, that there is no evidence for this, this assertion that men are more inclined to rape and... Um, you know, it's just part of their DNA or something, that this is something that's been proven false by countless studies. And um, we need to look more closely at these, these narratives. So can you elaborate on that? 
Yeah, I think it's really important to unpick masculinity from um, sexual violence. And I think it's important for um, factual reasons, and I think it's important for political reasons. I think for factual reasons is that there is no evidence that rape is somehow intrinsic to male biology or evolutionary inheritance or anything like that. We see dramatic um, changes in the uh, instance of rape um, by in geographical space in different countries, for example, and of course over historical times. So you know, even in armed conflicts, there's a wide variety, wide vari- vi- variation. Sorry, in the nature and degree of sexual violence, with some conflicts, in fact, expressing very little, experiencing very little. There's also in cultures, different cultures. Some cultures have much higher levels of sexual violence than other cultures. Mm. So, for example, there is really, really good evidence showing that cultures where there is sexual equality, there is relatively high levels of female economic power and low levels of armed conflict actually have very low levels of, um, uh, of rape and, and other sexual abuse. So I think this is really, really important that, you know, to, to note that it's not inevitable. One of the things that feminists and any anti-rape um, activists um, come across, come against all the time is this idea that, oh, you know, men just do it. Um, you know, that's their thing. It's inevitable. It's universal. It's ahistorical. And that is a, that, that's not true. It's not true factually. Um, and it also is not true in terms of um, our emotional acceptance of, of what sexual violence is. In other words, you know, sexual abusers learn how to act as sexual abusers within specific communities, within specific historical and geographical communities. So I think that's the factual thing. I think the second, though, is the political. And I think it's really important mm. that we don't, we, we as feminists don't contribute to a hostile understanding of masculinity. Because if we do that, then we are going to, um, we're going to really not be able to get on board, young men in particular. That's very interesting. And you've also um, looked at the difference, uh, I mean, how this narrative of rape being about power and not about um, the sexual aspect. And you've quoted um, another another feminist um, scholar, I'm forgetting who it is, and they've talked about how if it wasn't about the sex, then you could just hit someone and get away with it. Yes. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, that's um, uh, Catherine McKinnon. Yeah, um, you know, the big debates of second wave feminism in the 1970s and 1980s is that uh, rape is about power, not sex. And, you know, this was really, I mean, it was propagated by quite a few feminists. Um, I guess the most famous one was Susan Brown Miller, um, whose wonderful book on Against Their Will, Against Our Will, um, really set the scene for a huge scholarship of on sexual violence. And it was really a major classic. Um, and this idea that rape is about power, not sex, has become mainstream in lots of feminist writings. And, you know, I think it's a really important, it was a very important slogan of that second wave feminism because it, you know, remember, this is a time when, uh, when a woman reported 
being sexually assaulted to the police, they would ask her if she had an orgasm. So this idea that somehow this was a sexual thing. Mm. Um, So I think it was really important as an intervention. My own work, though, I think um, argues that actually it's less hopeful than than it used to be, less helpful politically than it used to be. Um, for the reasons that McKinnon said that you just quoted there, that, you know, if it's not violence, if it's not sex, but violence, then why didn't he just hit her? But I think the main reason I um, I want to keep the sex with the violence is because that is how victims, survivors of sexual abuse still see it by and large. So in other words, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, that, you know, we need to take the experience of victims seriously, and if victims um, are saying this is actually much worse than being than being punched in the face. That this is an, an attack on my sex, on my sexuality, on my sexual identity. Then I don't think that we can just throw it away. So it is. It comes back to I think you know making sure that victims and survivors have the last word um, in in this this debate. Mm-hmm. And that is really intrinsic to preventing sexual violence giving survivors uh the last word and you've maintained after all of this research and all of this um exploration into you know looking at sexual violence and the history of sexual violence and where we are today you still maintain that um sexual violence is preventable this is this is something that we can stop from happening and i mean what makes you believe that and how do we do it? Where do we start? Yeah, I do think that um, sexual violence is preventable and that we can reduce, if not eradicate, sexual violence. Um, I think that it really sounds optimistic to a lot of people, but this is precisely why I'm an historian, because you can see as an historian that things change and they sometimes change for the worse, which I think it has changed for the worse in the British context and perhaps in the Indian context, but they can also change for the better. So I think we just really need to think of strategies that are effective, that can sort of help move those changes forward. Um, you know, a lot of the, 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 the strategies are not that we have for reducing sexual violence and not, in fact, very effective. So, you know, um, lock them up and throw away the key. You know, we know that that is not effective, for one thing, um, that, you know, recidivist rates are extremely high for people who come out of prison. Secondly, we know that, in fact, what they're doing is they're raping people in prison. So it's Mm. not an effective way to to do it. There's also victim blaming. So there's a lot of attempts saying, oh, women should simply be more careful. They should buy the latest lock on their door for their front door. They should make sure they don't wear short skirts. They should come, you know, not stay out too late and not get drunk. Um, You know, that kind of victim blaming, I think, is also a negative and a very wrong way to approach it and you know advising you know girls women to simply stay at home is sort of unhelpful um you know you know survival for a lot of women depends on having to go to work in the fields or in mm. the marketplaces or whatever and of course domestic sophias are full of, of sexually violent husbands and boyfriends anyway so those are the mm. not effective ways i think historically there have been some really interesting sort of individual ways of tackling sexual violence. So, for example, 19th century, you know, it was very, very common for uh, people who had known to have sexually violated um, another person to be jeered at in the streets. Eggs would be thrown at them, windows of their homes would be broken, and things like that. 
um, so local justice type approaches, which of course are emotionally um, satisfying, but actually won't change a culture of sexualized violence. So I think we need to turn to other ways. And primarily, these are about solidarity, about building movements that are inclusive, that, um, that argue against sexual violence, that are educative, particularly in the context of young boys, um, that uh, involve lots of, uh, of different people. I mean, I, I argue in my book that, you know, we do need, obviously, to tackle sexual violence at every single level. Uh, we do need still better laws. We do need better police forces who actually are sensitive and trained to deal with um, with very distressed uh, women or victims who come in. We, we do need to make sure that women feel more confident in reporting abuse and they don't feel ashamed about their own violation. They don't take responsibility for their own violation. But, you know, in the final analysis, um, I think we really do need to try to encourage men to get involved in these movements. Um, you know, the Me Too movement, um, the anti-rape movement, the activist movements, because that really is the, the only way to solve the problem. I mean, the problem of sexual violence remains primarily one of male perpetrators, and we need to get men involved in that. You know, it's not to say that men are not also victims. I've written extensively, in fact, about um, male victims of sexual violence. But in the final analysis, you know, we need to we need to sort out masculinity and we need to encourage men themselves to find, to forge new and more peaceful ways of, of being men. That seems a bit difficult at the moment because I see all of these mm-hmm. all of these conservative pundit figures who are gaining huge, huge followings and we're telling um, men to be unapologetic about their masculinity and anyone who's pointing to their max- masculinity being toxic as attacking them, yeah. you know? Exactly. I mean, this we're going through a really tough period now. I mean, it's much worse now than it was even 10 years ago, um, you know, that there is this huge pushback against feminism um, that you've identified. And um, a huge sort of remasculine um, you know, masculinization of aggressive behavior, and you see this in in many many countries. Um, you see it in my country, Britain. You see it in the states. You see it all over the world. But you know, we just need to keep working at it. You know, there were mm. worse periods in the past, and there were better periods in the past. In other words, we can still make a difference. But of course, you're right. This is a very difficult period for um, sexual politics, and we're seeing that all over the world. Yeah, yeah, and I'm glad that you bring up um, Me Too, and I'm glad that you bring up the fact that you're a historian because I'm wondering what a historian's role is looking at the looking at sexual violence in general, and then looking at um, you know the cultural shift that we're in. Do you feel a particular responsibility given your um, extensive knowledge of um, the history of this problem. Yeah, we do have a responsibility. Well, everyone has a responsibility, but I feel as an historian that my responsibility is to just propagate this idea that it doesn't have to be that way, that, you know, we have seen the way um, societies have been in the past. We know what are the better models in terms of empowering women 
empowering men, um, creating, forging more peaceful worlds. And we need to keep on sort of emphasizing that these are the, these are the ways that we ought to be moving forward and trying to mold our communities, but also trying to mold our families, our children, our friends. You know, this is all very, very important. It doesn't have to be this way. We can still change the world. And um, you know, it is going to involve every, you know, every single person with every single person's own particular skills. Um, and and Sophia's of influence, you know, whether you're a housewife, whether you're an academic or whatever, this is what is needed. So I, I guess my my real message is that, you know, wherever, whatever are our skills and our location, our context, that we can make a difference. So whether we're a housewife, whether we're a politician, whether we're a student, an academic, a doctor, a teacher, that we all have this responsibility. And yes, I think we do need to be optimistic. Um, I call it, I know it's funny, but I kind of call it strategic optimism. Because of course, if we are too negative, then nothing will change. We do have to remain optimistic. We do have to keep fighting the fight. If for no other reason is that, that you know, these, these, this kind of violence affects us, it affects our families, it affects our friends, and we just need to, to, to keep fighting that, that fight. Yeah, that's a that's a great great message, and um, I mean, I I really like to focus on what we can all do individually and where we can all start at an individual level. Do you have a specific um thing that the listener can take away, and uh, oh, I can start doing this today, and I can start focusing on this today to make a difference. Yeah, I think I think there are two responses to that. The first response is. I think we need to look at ourselves and say, well, what are my strengths? What is my context? Um, in my personal case, I am a, an academic, I'm a writer. So clearly, my response must be to write, to educate, to you know, talk to my students. But if you're a housewife, you have a different response. Your, your job is to work within the schools, work with your own children. If you're a politician, it's to change laws. If you... Um, are a, a legal a scholar. It is to fight for the rights of uh, rape victims in court. So I think the first point is to say, who am I and what are my skills? And that is what is going to drive you. But I think the second thing is something that we all can do. And that is, I think we really need to, to get a, discussions going about the topic with whoever we are involved with, um, whatever our context. Because one of the things about sexual violence is that it's something that people find it difficult to talk about. They want to push it aside. It's, it's sensitive. Mm -hmm. I think that getting people talking is a really important step forward. I know when I was writing the rapist book, you know, it, it was, I was very struck when I was talking to people, particularly when I was talking to young men, that, you know, they were frightened. They didn't want to talk mm. about it, not because they were horrible people, quite the opposite. They didn't want to talk about it because they were good people. And they were frightened that they would kind of make a politically correct mistake, say something wrong. I think that we just really need to get people talking about sexual violence and about the limits of, of, of sexual violence and, and what we can do. I think that's something everyone can do. So I think first, your own particular context, who am I? 
what are my skills? But secondly, just talking about it to as many people as possible is really, really important. I'm very inclined to pick up on what you said earlier about there are positive examples of um, societies and cultures where sexual violence has, you know, it, it's not been the way it is today. So, you know, I, I, I think we can all use some positive um, uh, reminding that this is possible. So can you give, give us one example? Yeah. Um, well, for example, everyone says that the, ma- the most dangerous place um, for women is, of course, during wartime. But we have so much evidence that, in fact, some military conflicts see relatively little, if any, sexual violence, whereas others see a lot of sexual violence. So that is something that we need to really think about. We know that societies with high female um, education and high female wages, so Scandinavian countries, for example, have very low uh, late rates of, of sexual violence. These are all things that we can, we can be aware of. We also know that in our own countries that there were times when sexual violence was low compared to other times. So, you know, keeping, um, keeping awareness of those things and those contexts are really important. Yeah, definitely. And this, this next thing I want to ask you is, is, is um, not entirely related to your work, but I guess it is kind of. Um, according to Wikipedia, you're a, you're a socialist feminist, and <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't I don't know if that's if that's accurate. But w- what is a socialist feminist? And I, I mean, I'm very interested in knowing this because when I was talking to Dr. Alison Phipps on the podcast, she uh, plugged this in. She said that to to um, tackle sexual violence, to 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 completely you know destroy sexual violence, we need to destroy capitalism. You know, <laughs> so um, that's what makes me t- t- uh, question that, and um, mm-hmm. just wondering what your personal views are on that. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely on her side. Yeah, I think that is completely true. I mean, you know, socialist feminists. I don't know who wrote that, by the way. It wasn't me, and I don't know where they got it from. But I actually, I'm very proud to say that I am a socialist feminist. Um, it seems a little bit dated now. I think I used to call myself that uh, many years ago. But but I'm very proud to be a socialist feminist, and I think. What that means for me in the context of um, sexual violence is that in order to tackle sexual violence, we, we need to um, deal with the, the totality of people's lives. In other words, you know, rape doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's part of entire mm. worlds. It's part of the inequalities that we face. Um, you know, rape is inequitable in its distribution. Poor people, minority groups, a much higher at much higher risk than other groups. Rape is inculcated through relations of domination. And these include, of course, sexism, but also racism, colonialism, economic inequalities. Um, you know, that the you know the whole reality of people's lives are involved in these in these debates. And I think the other mm. thing is that a socialist feminist is concerned and it's related, is concerned with intersectionalities. In other words, that we need to be conscious of the various different identities and subject positions that all of us are in. And this includes the, you know, the full range of genders, races, ethnicities, religions, social orientation, ages, generations. Um, to understand sexual violence, all of those things have to be taken into consideration. So this is the link, if you like, 
between the socialist part of it and the feminist part of it. It's the whole reality of people's lives. Hmm. I, I am quite curious about how we can go about, um, you know, completely curbing sexual violence um, in the current system. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, so, so this question is partly motivated by my own personal personal journey. Do you think there's any way in which we can actually exist in a capitalist society and tackle capitalism at the same time? Or do you think it's the inequality that is, um, you know, fundamental to capitalism? It just means that certain voices carry more weight and certain crimes are just going to rem- going to go unpunished is that is that how you mean it or i think um i think we do need a radical change in our society um i do think that a a more equitable fairer society is something that we all ought to be be fighting for that said we can't wait for the revolution <laughs> before we start yeah. helping um people who are suffering and people who are being harmed and so I think in that sense, I think we have to be really pragmatic about um, you know, working with a, a society that's not good for vulnerable people, a society that harms them more and is not uh, helping them, um, a society where um, sexual harms are pretty prevail- uh, prevalent. Um, mm. And again, you know, do what we can to um, reach out to people in, in ways that, that can help them, um, while at the same time, of course, not giving up on that, that higher vision, that better vision, that you know, it doesn't have to be this way. This, this, this also makes me think of all the work that you've been doing for the last, I, I don't know how many years, and you've been looking at these histories and um, you know, specific stories. A lot of those are in your book. And, and this can't be easy work so how do you maintain your emotional well-being with um you know the kind of academic research and the kind of writing that you're doing oh that's a really difficult one um i -hmm. think i think i have to acknowledge that i'm in a very privileged position i'm white i'm i've got a stable job um i'm educated um I live in communities that are safe. They're not war communities. Um, I live in countries in peace time. Um, so this makes me very privileged. And this comes, um, you know, to the, the question of intersectionalities. You know, I am in a privileged position. And therefore, I have an ability that a lot of others may not have to look at horrible, violent issues without you know, without them having a very personal impact on, on my day-to-day life. Obviously, they have an impact on me. Obviously, very upsetting. Um, but I do, I am in a privileged position. I think in addition to that, I am very, very lucky that I surrounded myself, I'm surrounded by feminists of both sexes, of all sexes, I should say, not both, of all sexes. Um, I keep at a great distance um, harm-ignoring, violence-minimizing, and rape-excusing people. I keep them as far away from me as, as possible. And I keep really close to me feminists, activists, angry survivors. These, these sustain one. 
in um, in the in this fight for for justice. So I think those I think that's the two ways I would I would respond. Um, you know, obviously, anyone who works in this field has to look after themselves. You know, so techniques of self care, which um, for me is cooking. <laughs> But you know, we all have, mm. in other words, not to let the the subject uh, take over um, from uh, from the good parts of life and the good friends and communities that um, that I surround myself with. So I'm very lucky in that sense. Yeah, that's that's very profound. And finally, what does what does future research look like for you? What I mean, you are working on a project looking at sexual violence and health um right now and is that is that something you're going to continue on for a while yeah right now i'm working i've got a um five year welcome trust funded project interdisciplinary project global project which looks it's called shame so it's sexual harms and medical encounters and we have a great team so lucky great team working with me on it, anthropologists, other historians, political polit- politics people, philosophers, um, filmmaker, um, all kind of looking at different aspects of sexual harms in global context. So certainly that's going to be my um, my project for the next few years. I don't know what I'll do after that. Um, something will come. Something will come <laughs> up. I think I'll move away from sexual violence though. But um, but this is this is what is really. Um, uh, exciting me right now and indeed um your listeners may be interested to hear we've got one more postdoc going to be advertised as part of the shame project um we're going to advertise it sort of i think around march april next year to start the first of october uh, 2020 so we hope to to get um get well we will be getting one more researcher for that project i think the health aspect of sexual violence is really really interesting because you know, sexual violence has major health outcomes, you know, physical, psychological, in terms of communities. Um, it affects not only victim survivors, but of course, it affects their families, their friends, the perpetrators themselves. So I think health and by health, by the way, um, we define it quite broadly. So it's about how doctors, midwives, psychiatrists, um, Police surgeons, mm. um, how they deal with with rape um, survivors over over both in the present and in the past. Hmm. Amazing. That sounds amazing. I mean, I mean, I'm very inclined to ask you this final thing. How are you so um so cheerful about you know we're talking about sexual violence and it's and you've been at it for so long and this probably leads goes back to that same question about maintaining your emotional well-being but where does this optimism and this this um this this energy comes from i think optimism energy comes from you know friends family my my colleagues my students that you know i, I you know what i said at the very beginning of our discussion here today that you know my students are, are fantastic and they're full of ideas, young and old, you know, whatever their ages, they, you know, they see worlds, they're trying to change their lives. And this gives me a lot of optimism. It gives me a lot to hope for and a lot to dream for. Um, and yeah, and, and I guess it does come back to this idea that, you know, if you want to lead a happy life, no matter what you know, your job is or what kind of topic you work on, even a horrible topic like sexual violence, 
um, you know, you just need to surround yourself with with good people, uh, people who are mm. community focused, people who are empathetic, people who are, are interested in the world and interested in changing the world. And certainly, you know, this is the these are the communities that I have placed myself in, and I'm so fortunate um, for all my friends and, and and colleagues and students. Hmm, amazing. I think that's a great, great place to end on. Uh, and for all of us to take away that we all need to do our bit and we all need to keep at it, keep chipping away at the problem. And we can all build a world where sexual violence doesn't exist. It doesn't have to exist. And thank you so much, Joanna. This was such an erratic conversation. I mean, Joanna has been so patient. Uh, this, 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 we rescheduled a couple of times and then with the internet, but I'm so grateful that we could make this happen. And that's all thanks to you, Jana. Thank you so oh, much. Thanks so much, Amita. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Joanna Burke. And this was our first episode of this new decade, although I'm sure that you're pretty tired of these jokes and they're ancient by now. But um, I really hope you like this episode. I've been a big fan of Joanna's work ever since I read her book. And um, it was just amazing talking to her. So let me know what you thought of this episode and of the podcast in general. 2019 was a very special year. This podcast started last year and this year what I want to do is continue our conversations and explore different themes related to sexual violence and learn how we can all end sexual violence, how we can prevent sexual violence because I strongly believe, as Joanna does, I strongly believe that sexual violence is preventable, it has an end and we can all work together to achieve that, we can all work together to support survivors better. So thank you for being part of that journey. And in 2020, let me know what you want me to do, who you want me to speak to, what topics you want me to explore and anything I can do better. And also, if you want to get involved, if you want to get involved with any aspects of the podcast, editing or researching or even interviewing. Yeah, I'm really keen to get people on board and form a team. So let's make 2020 the year we make serious progress towards ending sexual violence and talking research is going to do that every single sunday we're going to talk about all sorts of issues related to sexual violence so see you next sunday i'm asmita and this is talking research